to study the children of his super sperm, tracking their development, achievements, and IQ. He would publish his findings in scientific journals, vindicating his extraordinary semen and his experiment. Graham outlined his ideas to Chen with an unapologetic bluntness. The principles of this may not be popular, but they are sound, he said. So far, we've refused to apply to humans what we already know and apply to animals and plants. Graham gave Chen a tour of the bank, such as it was. Graham owned ten beautiful acres in Escondido, a thriving town half an hour northeast of San Diego. In Graham's prize-winning garden, in the shadow of the American flag that Graham flew over his property, sat a concrete bunker the size of a modest bathroom. The bunker was a few feet underground and slightly dank. It had once been a pump house. Graham had converted it into a small laboratory. Its prize equipment was a lead-sheathed, waist-high vat of liquid nitrogen. Graham opened the vat and showed Chen what he claimed was the Nobel sperm, a few dozen ampules frozen at 196 degrees below zero centigrade. Graham wouldn't disclose the names of his three Nobel donors, so Chen wasn't sure if Graham was an honest eccentric or a con artist. Chen called every Nobelist he could find in California and asked if he had made a sperm deposit. One after another said no. A dozen had never heard of Graham's project. Another ten admitted that Graham had contacted them, but said they had turned him down. Chemistry and Peace Laureate Linus Pauling said he had nixed Graham the old-fashioned way is still best. Finally, Chen reached Stanford's William Shockley, whose invention of the transistor had won him the 1956 Physics Nobel. Chen asked his question. After a long, long pause, Shockley said, Yes, I'm one of them. This is a remarkable attempt, and I am thoroughly in sympathy with this sort of an approach. Everyone talks about it, but by God, Graham is doing something about it. Chen had his story. The Nobel sperm bank was for real. Chen's Los Angeles Times article provoked an international sensation. Journalists called him by the dozen. So did desperate women hoping to score genius sperm. Graham, too, was inundated with media requests. Reporters from all over the country wanted to see his magic vials and quiz him about his intentions. The press immediately gave the repository a much flashier nickname, the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank. The nickname pleased Graham, who started using it himself. On March 2nd, Graham held a press conference in his backyard. He spent most of the session rebutting accusations of sexism, racism, elitism, white supremacism, and Nazism. Yes, Graham conceded, all his donors were white, and it was true that he gave sperm only to married women, not lesbians or single women. But he was no Nazi. I don't see a parallel. We aren't thinking of a super race. We are thinking in terms of a few more creative, intelligent people who otherwise might not be born. In giddier moments, Graham was dreaming bigger than that. His little repository was a pilot project, he said. Soon it would seed similar banks around the world. Every city would have its own genius sperm bank. There wouldn't be just a few super kids, but thousands of them. Given enough time, Graham mused, 
genius sperm banks might help stimulate man's ascent toward a new level of being, of which his present organic status may be only the crude beginning. His repository, Graham hoped, might one day give birth to mankind's secular savior. Other people could have conceived the idea of a Nobel sperm bank, but no one except Robert Graham could have conceived it and made it a reality. Graham had the right-wing politics of a self-made millionaire, the relentless inquisitiveness of an inventor, the can-do spirit of an entrepreneur, and the moxie of a salesman. It was also no accident that Graham was in Southern California, the ground zero of American libertarianism. In 1980, California culture was a clash between free-thinking futurism, New Ager Jerry Brown, Governor Moonbeam was in the middle of his second term, and hard-right political conservatism. Former Governor Ronald Reagan had swept the New Hampshire primary just three days before the Times article. In Robert Graham, and perhaps only in Robert Graham, these alien theologies intersected. His sperm bank sought to harness scientific libertarianism and dreamy futurism, and put them in the service of rigid social control. Here's my favorite Robert Graham story. In the early 1970s, when he had tired of running his eyeglasses company, but wasn't yet collecting Nobel sperm, Robert Graham tried to start a country. He thought an island would be best. Graham instructed George Michel, the vice president at his firm Armorlite, to locate an island that Graham could buy and flag as a sovereign, or at least semi-sovereign, nation. Graham instructed Michel that the island should be at least five miles wide and 15 miles long. Michel hired several Los Angeles real estate agents, and they eventually located four or five promising candidates, mostly small islands in the Atlantic Ocean that Great Britain might surrender for the right price. Graham was thrilled. Next, he assigned Michel and several Armorlite colleagues to design the island's living and working quarters. Graham decreed that the island be completely self-sufficient and that no cars would be permitted on it. Michel drew blueprints for prefabricated living saucers that could be stacked on land or in the sea. He designed a futuristic sewage system, greenhouses, and food factories. His masterpiece, Michel recalled fondly, was a vacuum tube-driven transportation system in which gyroscopically balanced pods would zip passengers from one part of the island to another. Graham's island wasn't the usual kind of millionaire's ego trip. Graham didn't aspire to rule his kingdom. He lived to play handmaiden to great men, men he thought were better than he was. Graham intended to create an elite research colony. He would invite the world's best practical scientists to the island, offer them lavish living conditions and the fanciest laboratories money could buy, and let them start inventing. Graham land would support itself. When scientists produced something valuable, they and the colony would share the royalties. The inventors would get rich, and the island would prosper. Graham was convinced that scientists would flock to his island because he was sure they wanted what he wanted, an escape from the morons, weaklings, and imbeciles who increasingly dominated the rest of the world. Science would be Graham land's god and its law. It would be a rational empire. Graham's own private Atlas shrugged. 
Graham Land never progressed beyond the planning stages. Michelle quit Armorlite in a stock dispute. Graham got distracted and never managed to buy the island. But the private nation was pure, distilled essence of Robert Graham. The entrepreneurial vigor, the cockamamie grandeur, the unshakable faith in practical science, the contempt for the pig-ignorant, lazy masses, and the infatuation with finding and claiming the world's best men. Robert Graham was born on June 9, 1906, in Harbor Springs, Michigan. When he was a rich old man, Graham liked to tell stories that made it sound as if he'd grown up on the frontier, kerosene lanterns instead of electricity, hauling water up the road for the Saturday night bath. This was bogus nostalgia. Though Harbor Springs was small, only 1,500 residents, and rural, there was no pioneer hardship. Harbor Springs was a resort, the summer playground of Midwestern royalty, and it was enjoying its heyday as Robert was growing up in the 1910s and 20s. The town sat on Little Traverse Bay, a gorgeous inlet of Lake Michigan at the northern tip of the state. Harbor Springs famously had the cleanest air in America, the west winds racing over the lake stripped the air of pollen and dust. Hay fever sufferers made Harbor Springs a summer refuge in the late 19th century. Thanks to railroads and a ferry, the rich soon followed for the beautiful harbor and the long summer nights. The Harbor Springs summer census was a who's who of American business, including the Gambles of Procter & Gamble and many other names from the fronts of supermarket packages and the backs of automobiles. They built cottages.